to the second episode in our look at the changing landscape for corporate criminal liability and the proposed legislation that's coming down the track. This episode follows on from an interview that I did with one of the architects of the new Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, Lord Garnier. And today I'm delighted to be joined by David Bridge, um, who's going to talk through with me a little bit more about the identification principle and the changes that the bill will bring. This series is designed to be practical um, in its approach, um, but this particular episode, we are going to get pretty technical because we'll be delving into the law so that we, we can better understand what the change in legislation is designed to affect. So, um, we're going to be going through a little bit of about the background and the history of the identification doctrine. Thanks, David. Yes, so the uh, the topic is the identification doctrine. Perhaps we can start by summarising what's happening now. Yeah, so it's a fairly last minute addition, actually, to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill. Um, and it looks likely that it is going to change the identification doctrine, and that is the test for which officers of a company can make a company criminally liable for their actions. Um, as we learned from Lord Garnier, who I think has the inside track, our current understanding is that the bill is expected to receive royal assent in late October or early November. Yeah, so it's pretty soon. And this is separate to the introduction of the, the failure to prevent offence. Yeah. Fraud. Exactly. So really interesting to say sort of a last minute addition, um, but they will be found in the same bill. And so this um, is about the primary liability for companies um, for economic crime rather than the separate offence of a failure to prevent, so a failure to prevent someone else committing it um, on the company's behalf. So, yeah, shall we start with what the current position is, so how the identification doctrine works currently. Yes, well, it's currently a common law doctrine rather than something um, on the statute book. So it's something that's evolved through case law and it allows a company to be held criminally liable where someone who at the time was its directing mind and will uh, or an embodiment of the company uh, has the requisite state of mind to commit the offence. And that might be, for example, um, intent uh, or recklessness or dishonesty. It depends on the offence in question. Now, the doctrine has been criticised in the past for allowing companies with complex management structures uh, to escape liability, because in large companies, you have several levels of management and quite often managers below board level can have a, a, a huge amount of influence and autonomy over what the company does, but they can't currently be considered a part of the directing mind uh, or to embody the company as a whole. And the effect of all this is it, it, in the past, it's been much easier to prosecute a small company, a sort of one man band where it's very easy to identify the director, a sole director as being uh, the directing mind and will of the company. Um, it's much easier to, for a prosecution to succeed against a small company than it is against uh, a much larger company. Yeah, and as you say, um, David, the courts have grappled with the doctrine um, on, a, on a fairly limited number of occasions, actually. I think partly because, as you say, it is it is a challenge for prosecutors to bring um, 
prosecutions of corporates in this sphere. Um, but the leading cases that um, it's probably just worth touching on are Tesco and Atras. So that was the supermarket um, branch manager who was found not to embody the company as a whole. Um, there are examples of where um, a board of directors has delegated part of its management functions, um, but this was not on the facts found to be um, such a case. Um, Meridian um, actually um, is one of those rare cases where the identification doctrine was satisfied, and that was a Privy Council case. Um, and it was held that um, cases, and I think what the Privy Council was saying was cases may require a more critical examination of the statute creating the offence rather than a more straightforward application of the identification principle. Um, so that where the normal principles of attribution would defeat the intention behind a particular statutory provision, a special rule of attribution might be necessary um, to, to make those determinations as to whose act or state of knowledge or state of mind is to be attributed to the company. And I guess then most recently we had the SFO versus Barclays, which was a 2018 case. Um, and this is all in the public domain. And indeed, this case was referred to in uh, one of the Law Commission papers, the options paper, I think. Um, and the, the decision there was that the prosecution needed to be able to establish that the individuals had complete discretion or entire autonomy over the deal in question, including, in this particular case, the final sign-off um, in order to render the... Um, the bank itself criminally liable and it was found that in that particular instance that that hadn't been established on those facts so those are some of the sort of the the, the well-known cases and the the issues that have arisen in relation to identification doctrine i suppose we should also consider what's been done to address the difficulty of prosecuting a large company to date Yes, because so far the approach hasn't been to, to tackle the identification principle head on. It's It's been to introduce legislation dealing with specific criminal offences to try and make it easier um, to deal with corporate criminal liability. And there are three pieces of legislation which we've, we've had so far. Um, the first was the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act uh, in 2007, and that only deals with conduct uh, resulting in death. But that was obviously uh, where some of the, the, the main public attention had been focused um, after events like the Hatfield rail crash, uh, where, where the, the public was very concerned about the fact that uh, companies didn't seem to be able to be um, prosecuted for, for their failings. So the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act set a threshold for corporate criminal liability below director level and it doesn't require the prosecution to prove specific failings on the part of an individual senior manager. Um, an organisation can be guilty under that act um, if the way in which its activities are managed or organised by senior management uh, is a substantial element in the relevant breach of duty. Um, but there have been a very limited number of prosecutions uh, under the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act, uh, and I have to say most of them have still been against fairly small businesses with simple management structures, so it hasn't necessarily been a game changer uh, in terms of corporate criminal liability.
Thank you. Yes. And then we had the Bribery Act, of course, of 2010. Um, and this brought in the failure to prevent model, um, but obviously limited uh, to bribery um, offences. And that was a Section 7 uh, offence, um, which introduced the corporate offence of failure to prevent bribery. And in effect, that is a strict liability offence with no mental or element or mens rare or required on behalf of, on the part of those representing the corporation. And so if it can be demonstrated that the person associated with the organisation has committed an offence of bribery, then the organisation will be liable under Section 7, subject to the defence, which is one of adequate procedures being in place. Um, the Ministry of Justice, I think some 18 months after the um, legislation hit the, the, the statute books, published guidance on the Bribery Act, um, which included guidance on the adequate procedures. So we, we hope that uh, the, the guidance that's published um, under this um, new act will, will come a little bit quicker than that. But um, in terms of prosecutions, in total, I think we have... 10 prosecutions for Section 7 offences. Most of those have been resolved by way of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Um, one case we've had seen through the courts, which ended up in a jury trial. It was a CPS case of Scanson, um, a relatively small corporate who took the um, position at trial that they did have adequate procedures, albeit the jury found otherwise. Um, yeah. And then, of course, we saw that failure to prevent model followed through um, in the Criminal Finances Act. Yeah, so that, that came in in 2017 and it, it followed a, a very similar model for um, establishing a corporate criminal offence of failing to prevent uh, the facilitation of tax evasion. Um, and that imposes uh, liability on organisations that fail to prevent persons associated with them from facilitating tax evasion, subject only to the defence that the organisation had reasonable procedures in place. Slightly odd that they chose to, to change the wording from the Bribery Act, so rather than adequate procedures, it was reasonable procedures, but we haven't had any case law which would tell us how, how real a difference that is. Um, as with the corporate offence of failing to prevent bribery, there's, there's no need to show that a controlling mind and will of the company was involved uh, or aware of the wrongdoing. Um, and as yet, we haven't had any prosecutions um, for failing to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion. So that's the background uh, to all of this. Um, what are the proposed changes to the identification doctrine? Yeah, so as we said at the start, it's an amendment that's been introduced to the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which will alter the identification doctrine. And this proposed change will bring senior managers within scope, allowing a company to be held responsible for their criminal actions. So it's Clause 195 of the bill, which states that if a senior manager of a body corporate or partnership acting within the actual or apparent scope of their authority, commits or attempts to commit a relevant offence after the section comes into force, then the organisation is also guilty of the offence. Um, yeah. 
there was a fact sheet, wasn't there, published yeah. published along with this by the government, um, uh, and that that stated that the reform proposed is to place the identification doctrine on a statutory footing for economic crimes, uh, providing certainty that senior managers are in scope uh, of attribution to a corporation. Um, and the test that's been introduced replicates that that definition of senior manager, which we've already had from the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act. 2007. Um, it's clear from the, uh, the the fact sheet that was published with it that this model will look at what the senior manager's actual role and responsibilities are within the organisation. It's not going to be based on job title. It's not going to be a matter what, what what you're called. It's going to be a matter of uh, of what you really do and how much um, control you have uh, over the actions of the company. Um, it, it'll cover instances where the senior manager is a person who, play, who plays a significant role in the decisions uh, about the whole or a substantial part of the activities of the company. Yeah, and I think the government's impact statement added a bit more detail to that. Not much, though, but um, what the impact statement says is by looking at their decision-making power rather than title, it better ensures complex governance and management structures are in scope of prosecution. This will ensure organisations cannot avoid liability for criminal offences through the use of opaque governance structures. So the burning question, David, in all of this is who will be a senior manager for these purposes? Yes, well, I suppose we start with the, the definition that they've they've included in the bill. And as I said, it's taken directly from the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act 2007. So a senior manager is defined in Clause 195.4 as an individual who plays a significant role in either the making of decisions about how the whole or a substantial part of the activities of the company or partnership are to be managed or organised, or they play a significant role in the actual managing or organising of the whole or a substantial part uh, of these activities. And according to the notes of the bill, uh, it's envisaged, for example, that this could include those in regulatory compliance roles. Okay, and so does the fact that we've got that definition and the definition of a senior manager being lifted from existing law make it easier to determine who will fall within this definition? Not really, I think, um, in part because of the lack of prosecutions under that yeah. Act. Um, as you mentioned, there was guidance issued by the Ministry of Justice on the Corporate Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act. So we can look at that. Uh, and that said that apart from directors and similar senior management positions, roles likely to be under consideration include regional managers in national organisations and the management managers of different operational uh, divisions. But the problem is prosecutions for corporate manslaughter are relatively rare uh, and who constitutes a senior manager hasn't been a factor that any case uh, has turned upon. And of course, it's important to remember, because we're talking about criminal trials, uh, the question of whether someone is a senior manager is a question of fact. And that means it's going to be a question for the jury to decide. Yeah, and I think the only case that I'm aware of where this was considered was the case of R versus Cornish, a 2016 case, um, where a Crown Court judge accepted a no case to answer submission in respect of a charge brought against an NHS trust, a, a charge of corporate manslaughter there. Um, he 
gave, I think, fairly short shrift to a submission that the case against the trust should be stopped on the basis that the precise tier or the precise individuals involved in the trust management had not been identified. Uh, the case was, in fact, stopped on other grounds, but his comments, I think, we can take as suggesting that the jury had heard sufficient expert evidence concerning at what level practices should be managed at an NHS trust to draw their own conclusions as the arbiters of the fact as fact as to whether the senior management was at fault. Yes, I think the the interesting point there is, is that it did take expert evidence to suggest who should have been making these decisions and, and, and whether that was um, senior management. But it does seem to me the question of who who is a senior manager is always going to be really fact sensitive. Every organisation manages uh, itself differently. Uh, factors like the size and the geographical spread um, and the number of management roles and descriptions of responsibilities are all going to be factors. Uh, the question of what is a substantial part of any business is always going to be open to argument, I think. Now, the new identification principle which is proposed only applies to relevant offences, so we perhaps need to look at what the relevant offences are. Yeah, so the relevant offences are listed in Schedule 12. Um, they include common law offences such as cheating the public revenue and conspiracy to defraud, as well as statutory offences such as those under the Theft Act, um, Financial Services and Markets Act, Proceeds of Crime Act, the Bribery Act, Financial Services Act and sanctions and anti-money laundering. Um, so although other offences can be added to the list in future, and I think the noises are that, that that's likely that this is going to be expanded beyond economic crime, the focus at the moment is on economic crime. Yeah. It's interesting to know actually that the offences for which there is or will be a failure to prevent offence uh, are also within the scope of, of this change. They are they are listed in the schedule. So that will give prosecutors multiple ways to approach some cases in relation to bribery and, and assuming that it goes through on fraud. Um, I'd have thought the failure to prevent offence is generally going to be the easier route in relation to those those um, crimes. Yes, that's true. Um... I mean, a company can defend itself on a charge of failure to prevent by showing that it's got reasonable or adequate procedures in place to prevent that offence, whereas there's no such defence if it's a senior manager involved. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see um, which which offence um, a prosecution goes down and why. Yeah, yeah. And what's the territorial scope? Um, of, uh, of of offences uh, under the identification principle? So the relevant acts um, can take place outside the UK. Um, there's a clause 1953 of the bill that's important because it provides that the acts or omissions that cause the relevant offence that took place outside the UK, then an organisation can only be guilty if the acts or omissions would constitute an offence in the location where they took place. So um, it does mean that the offence applies to companies that are um, incorporated outside the UK. But there is that, that issue about um, the, the, the dual, duality of the offending. So again, I think the second burning question is, you know, how do we see this playing out in practice? Could you sort of talk us through, David, a, a few examples that, that we've considered? Yeah, we've been we've been trying to think of sort of practical scenarios, um, real life 
people in 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 positions of of management and seeing whether we think they would constitute senior management and therefore um, have the ability through their actions to to make a, a company criminally liable. At one end of the scale, you can obviously think of examples where criminal liability for an organization is clearly going to be made out. If you've got a, a the board of directors, for example, of a, a mid-sized company, say an asset manager, if they'd conspired with the company's auditor to falsify annual accounts, um, then a board director is almost always going to fulfill the definition of a senior manager under these proposals because they will play a significant role in making decisions about how a substantial part of the company's operations should be managed or organized. At the other end of the scale, you can see situations where the company is not going to be criminal li criminally liable. So thinking of the Tesco and the Trust situation, a supermarket manager employed by a large chain of supermarkets, if they, for example, were to accept a bribe from a local supplier, um, a supermarket manager might have a, a, a substantial degree of autonomy over the branch that they run. Um, but in the context of a national chain, that's unlikely to be a substantial part of the company's activities. Uh, I think the more likely outcome there would be a prosecution of the individual and then potentially of the supermarket for failing to prevent bribery uh, under Section 9 of the Bribery Act. And then, of course, we have this large grey area in the middle where it's really uh, not quite clear who's going to uh, be a senior manager for these purposes. So if we imagine, for example, uh, a senior financial advisor working for a national firm, if they were responsible for something strategic, for example, the, the ESG investment strategy, um, if they were then to do something like provide advice in relation to a product which the, the firm doesn't have authorization for, um, the question then is, does their responsibility for ESG investment strategy count as taking decisions about the managing or organizing of a substantial part of the firm's activities? And that's going to come down to the scale of that responsibility and how large a part of the firm's business uh, ESG investments are. But you can see that someone having that sort of responsibility as part of their role might be enough um, to fix them with the senior management label and therefore make the company itself guilty for their wrongdoing. Yeah, and as you talk through those examples, David, it, it does become clear that it is all very fact-specific, um, which I think leads to the next question, which is, you know, what difference will we see in terms of prosecutions being brought? Um, I thought it was really interesting to hear Lord Garnier um, in the first podcast of this series saying that he didn't necessarily expect to see a high number of prosecutions. Um, I mean, I think as an ex-prosecutor, it seems to me fairly obvious that we're going to be seeing cases that perhaps are not borderline as the, as the ones to try out this new piece of legislation. Um, but at the same time, given that there is this new and improved tool for holding companies to account and where there is a public concern about conduct of a company or partnership, I think prosecutors are going to be under pressure to show that they are able to use it and, and will use it. Um, and I think one of the questions that arises in my mind in relation to sort of Lord Garnier's view on this new test for corporate criminal liability being a slight adjustment, which is is, is what he said in that first podcast is um, obviously as we've been discussing um, during this 
podcast, the purpose of this change in legislation is in effect to lower the bar for holding corporates to account. And so um, if prosecutions don't reflect that um, design of the legislation, I think I think that will be um, notable. So I, I, wonder, I wonder what your view of that is, David. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the fact that that Parliament will have passed this legislation, um, judges are going to have that in mind. Uh, and and obviously, you know, the will of Parliament is that this does um, bring the bar down for, for prosecutions of companies. Uh, and in one sense, I think Lord Garnier is right when he describes this as a slight adjustment, because it, it still requires a senior manager to be involved in the crime. Uh, and that's one step down from the directing mind and will, but only probably to the next tier of management down. It's certainly a long way, I think, from the US model of vicarious liability, where companies are liable for crimes committed by any employee or agent if they're acting in the, within the scope of their employment. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so in terms of timing um, as to when this offence will come into force, at present it's proposed that the offence will come into force two months after the bill receives royal assent. So um, we're looking at sort of the end of this calendar year. And no doubt companies and partnerships will be asking themselves what they can be doing now. I think that's a challenging question for all the reasons that we've been discussing. Um, and we will be looking in further detail um, in the forthcoming podcast in this series as to next steps. But I think an obvious starting point would be for any particular business who will have a senior manager in position to start thinking about um, awareness training of this um, potential criminal law risk and starting to think through who, who might be the senior manager within their own organisation. Yeah, and even though there's no adequate procedures defence for, for crimes committed directly by a company under this revised identification principle, I think it has to be helpful to show that you've taken steps to try and prevent criminal behaviour um, by managers in that way. Yeah, I agree, because I think... Um, that could impact on a prosecutor's decision to uh, bring a prosecution, particularly if it's a more minor offence. But obviously, if it's the worst case scenario, there would at least be some mitigation um, in place that, that could be deployed um, later down the line. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Um, thank you for that. And the next podcast uh, in this series will look at the new failure to commit fraud offence. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.